35. We're in Psalms for the summer, and we're going to go through Psalm 41 before the summer's out, which concludes what's called the first book of Psalms. Psalms are made up of 150 different songs, and it's divided into five different books. And the first book of Psalms is Psalm 1 through 41. So today we are at 35. So find your Bible and turn to Psalm 35. And this is simply identified as a Psalm of David. And it's a sequel. It's a follow-up to the previous Psalm, Psalm 34, which told about David having to escape uh, King Saul, who wanted him dead. And King Saul's supporters who wanted David dead. David is not the king when these events take place. He's a young assistant to King Saul. He's a friend of uh, Jonathan, Saul's son. But there is a great groundswell in the nation, and they see the potential in this young man. And a lot of people like him. And they don't like Saul as much as they thought they would like when they elected him president, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so anyway, what we have is there are people who like this young man and Saul is jealous and wants to get rid of him and his supporters want to get rid of this young man as well. So this is a follow-up to that. Now this song can be divided into three sections. The first section is 1 through 10 where uh, David tells how his enemies scheme against him and he prays to God that their schemes won't work and then he ends it with praise. And then the second section is verses, uh, are verses 11 through 18, where David tells how his enemies rejoice, that they're going to defeat him. And again, he prays to God and uh, then praises God. And then the third section uh, covers verses 19 through 28. And that's where David tells how his enemies gloat uh, in anticipation. They're going to get rid of this young man. And each one of these sections basically say the same thing, but from a different angle. The first, how they scheme. The second, how they rejoice. And the third, how they gloat with pride that he's going to be gone. So, uh, but they cover the same event. Three times the same event's covered from three different angles. Okay, So let's look at section number one, how his enemies scheme against him. Look at verse one. He said in verse 30, uh, chapter, or Psalm 35, verse 1, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Now the word plead in the New King James uh, literally means litigate. Uh, he wants God to be his advocate. This is a courtroom, courtroom language. Now, this is not a courtroom scene. Okay? But he's using courtroom language. What he's saying is, God, come to my defense as a defense lawyer would defend his client. Okay. He's going to mix all kinds of metaphors. Sometimes he's going to use battle language. But not, there's not going to be a battle going on. The people that are against him are within his own kingdom, and they're plotting his downfall. They never want this man to have a chance to become king. So he says, plead my case. Be my advocate, O Lord, with those who strive against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Now he doesn't identify who his leaders are, who his enemies are, but these are the supporters of King Saul who want David gone. 
So, now that he knows there's a plot afoot to get rid of him, to keep him from advancing any further, instead of getting supporters behind him, like we would do in a political situation, he turns to God and asks God to defend him. Just the opposite of what we would do. We'd want to get people on our side. But David doesn't think that way, especially when he's young. So look what he says in verse 2. He says to God, Take hold of the shield and buckler and stand up for my help. And draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Now, remember... King Saul wanted David dead, and he was crazy at times. The scripture says that demons would enter into, evil spirits would enter into King Saul. At one time, what did King Saul do? He went and tossed the spear at David, tried to kill him, threw the javelin. David remembers that. He says, God, I need you to pick up a javelin and throw it at him. You need to defend me against my enemies. Does he want God to pick up a literal javelin? I don't think so. That'd be strange seeing a javelin come down from heaven. Yeah, it's all one. Uh, but he's using this metaphorical language. You see, this battle language and this legal language. And so he's basically saying to God, uh, be my defense, stop the enemy right in their track so they can't advance anymore. And then the end of verse 3, he says, and say to my soul, he asked God to do this, speak to my soul, say, I am your salvation, which means I am your deliverance. He asked God to give him an assurance that God indeed will take care of this situation. Uh, one word from God is all it's going to take. That's what he said. Just give me one word. I won't worry about anything else. Just say, I'm your deliverance. Uh, isn't that what Jesus did? In his great commission, he said, Lo, I am with you. What? Always? Now, if he's with us, who could stand against us? See? He's already given us a word. Why should we worry about things? And David doesn't worry. He says, just give me a word and everything will be taken care of. And then he continues in this first section and we see the first of four lets. Let number one. Look at verse four. Let number one. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor. That means publicly. Uh, turn, make their plans fail. May they have egg on their face. May they be exposed for what they are. Enemies of mine and enemies of yours. He says in verse 4, Let those be turned back and brought to confusion. So, here are his enemies who want him dead. And uh, he says, Lord, confuse their plans. Now, these people have conspired against David, and what he wants God to do is to stop their plans and confuse them as they try to carry out the plan. Uh, <clears throat> remember the Watergate break-in? Some of you are old enough to remember that. And we've had other kind of break-ins and all kinds of... Uh, you know, how about when we uh, invaded Cuba? You know, we had the, they produced the Cuban Missile Crisis because we, the Bay of Pigs. Uh, we had these great plans, didn't we? But guess what happened? All got confused. All got muddled. And we end up with egg on our face. This is what happens. 
All these great plans to bring David's downfall, and David says, hey Lord, don't let that happen, uh, cause them to be humiliated in this situation. So now we come to let number two. Look at verse five. Let them be like chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord, the angel of God's presence, and we met last week, chase them. May they be put to flight. Uh, chaff in the wind has no resistance. It just goes up and it blows. The wind carries it where, Lord, allow this plot that they have to fail and just, just send them to flight. You know. May there be no uh, uh, ability for it to succeed. And then we come to, to let number three, verse six. Let their way be dark and slippery. Well, you know what happens when you're in the dark, you're confused, you're disoriented. Let it be slippery. It speaks of instability. And let the angel of the Lord, the angel of God's presence, pursue them, chase them, so they have, they're on the defense rather than on the offense. So this is David's prayer. Now he gives the reason why he asked God to do this. Look at verse 7. For, because, without cause, they have hidden their net for me in a pit. They're trying to trap me, which they have dug, look at this, without cause for my life. Uh, David is has the assurance that he can turn to God because there's no legitimate reason why these people are doing this. He's done nothing to deserve it. All he has ever done is support King Saul. He's never once said anything against the king and against the king's administration. And yet they've turned against him without cause. He's never provoked them. And they're trying to trap him. That's why you have the words pit in verse 7 and the word net in verse 7. And they're trying to set a trap for him. They're trying to catch him off guard. They're trying to, to put him in a compromising situation. Uh, and then charge him with something. Does that ever happen? I've been watching a series of uh, shows on the CIA. And they will put people in compromising positions and not really not doing anything, but boy, can they, they can, you know, uh, doctor photographs. What were you doing there at this, whatever, strip joint, you know, this, this marijuana den, you know, what were you doing there? And there's a, and there's a picture person was not even anywhere near there but they cut their head off of one picture and put it on another picture somebody was there and they got you boy what can you do in that situation do you know that people can accuse you of anything anybody can be accused of anything and you can't defend yourself in many times and even if you could guess what happens they've ruined you your reputation is destroyed. And David says, don't let them do that. <laughs> and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get David in one of those compromising positions. Now look at the fourth let, verse 8. Let destruction come upon him, that's David's enemy, unexpectedly. And let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction, let him fall. 
So David says, turn the plan on themselves and allow them to fall. We saw that last week. That was the same thing he said in Psalm 34. That's how we know this is one of the follow-up psalms. Now, the end of each one of these sections, section 1, section 2, and section 3, each one ends with a praise. And that's how we know that section ends. And here comes the praise. Look at verse 9. And he says, when all that happens, after that happens, here will be the result. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. Not in the fact that he was smart, that he got out of it, uh, that he had his supporters, and his supporters outnumbered his enemies. He said, I will be joyful in the Lord, and my soul will rejoice in his salvation, which means his deliverance. Not salvation like going to heaven, but the salvation here means deliverance. Deliverance from this situation. David says, I'll be sure to give you credit. Look at verse 10. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? And the answer, of course, is no one's like him. But notice he says, my bones will say it. My bones will say it. What does that mean? That means it's not going to be just David saying, eh, we'll give the Lord the credit. It's not some surface thing that comes from his mouth that just rolls off his tongue. Praise the Lord, you know. He says, I'm going to say it from the depths of my being. You ever have somebody say, I just feel my bones. It used to be an old Pentecostal song when something like this. I forget what it was. Feel him in my hands. I feel him in my feet. I feel him all over me. You ever hear that one? God's not dead. He's still alive. God's not dead. I know that from meetings I used to go to when I was young. <laughs> feel him in my hands. Feel him in my feet. What does that mean? That means I feel it. I'm not, you know, in your Baptist church, you're just singing to him. You know, lip service. Hey, we feel him in our bones. He says, my bones will praise the Lord. Oh, street, you always go too far, don't you? <laughs> now look at the end of verse 10. Yes, the poor and the needy from him. He will deliver the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. So here he says that, God, you are the champion of those people who are oppressed. And that was David's situation. He was young, he didn't have resources, and the establishment was against him, and here's God taking this young guy who is poor, materially poor, uh, just a kid, physically poor in the sense that he's slight. Uh, even though he beat Goliath, he beat him on faith, didn't he? Not only strength. And he says, I'm going to give you the credit. Okay, so that's the end of the first section. Look at the second section. Here he's going to tell basically the same story, give a prayer, but he's going to do it from the point of his enemies rejoicing. Look at verse 11. Fierce witnesses rise up. <clears throat> they ask me things that I do not know. Now notice he goes back to that court language, witnesses. You see that? He describes these witnesses as very angry and fierce witnesses. But they're liars. These are lying witnesses. How do we know that? Because he says, they ask me things I do not know. Uh, they're accusing him of things. And they take the witness stand in the metaphorical sense. And they're accusing him of things he doesn't know what they're talking about. For example, if you were in a courtroom and you were King David and somebody stood up and said, and why are you plotting to overthrow King Saul? What's the implication? 
You don't even know what they're talking about. I'm not plotting anything. What are you talking about? But guess what the implication? You're plotting to overthrow the king. Say, something he doesn't know about. He's not trying to do that, but the implication is, you know, you're a bad guy. Or, have you stopped beating your wife lately? No. Well, what's the implication? Your wife beat him. I don't know what you're talking about. They are charging him with things that he has no knowledge about whatsoever. So that is this language. And he says, look at verse 12. I like this. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. They reward me evil for good. That's the same thing that verse 7 says. Without a cause. Without a cause. There's no cause for doing this to David. Uh, David has only done what is good. He says, they reward me for, with evil for good. David, does David deserve this? doesn't deserve this. There's no reason that these people have turned against him. David has only been good toward these people and the king. To the sorrow of my soul. This is affecting David emotionally. This is affecting David psychologically. He's probably going into a little state of depression because of what's happening here. And then verse 13. As for me, see that's what they do. They reward me evil for good. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. See, this is, what, this is how David treated people. When he heard somebody was sick, guess what he did? He said, I'm going to put on sackcloth, and I'm going to start fasting, and I'm going to start praying that they'll be healed. Hey, he only wished these people good. When they got sick, he prayed for them. He says at the end of verse 13, I humbled myself with, with fasting. And my prayer would return to my own heart. Uh, one translation puts it this way. And when I prayed, my head bowed down on my bosom. That means that he was in deep prayer. What a sharp contrast between David. David who does good toward his enemies and his enemies who do evil toward David. You see that? It's laid out so clearly right here. Now look at verse 14. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. When I heard he was sick, something was going wrong with him, I walked the floor at night as if he were my own flesh and blood, as if he was my best bosom friend. I bowed heavily, he says at the end of verse 14, as one mourns for his mother. Can't get much more committed to loving these people than to say... When they got sick, I mourned when my mother, as when my mother died. When I heard the news that my mother died, and I did, oh, no. When I heard they got sick, he said, I, I mourned that much to these people. David doesn't deserve this treatment from these people. He's heartbroken over this. He just is amazed. But, look at verse 15. In my adversary, they rejoiced and they gathered together. Attackers gathered against me. And I didn't even know it. They were doing it behind my back. They did it secretly. These people that I loved and I prayed for went behind my back and they wished me harm. Verse 16. With ungodly mockers, I like that. With ungodly mockers at feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. In other words, these people would get together with David's 
with mockers, people that weren't even believers, maybe even people from other nations. And he said, at feast, I was the dinner conversation. They gnashed at me with their teeth. You ever have the pastor for dinner? Not literally, but... You know, that's... Well, that's what they did to David. He was the middle, he was the center of their, their conversations at dinner. And they thought, how can we... And they would plot together. How can we get rid of this guy? Even though he was friendly toward them, they're not friendly toward... David, they want to see his downfall. So, that takes care of basically his prayer. And then what we have is his praise. Look at verse 17. He says, Lord, how long will you look on? Why are you sitting there? You need to do something. Rescue me from their destructions. My precious life from the lions, the ones who want to destroy me and devour me. And he says, if you do that, I will give you thanks in the public, in the great assembly, which means I will do it in front of people. I will praise you publicly for the deliverance. I will praise you among my people. So, here we see that second section. And he just talks about how his enemies would rejoice if he fell. And then we come to the third section, verses 19 through 28, and he talks about how they anticipate gloating over uh, his demise. So let's look at verse 19. Again, we're going to see another let. This section opens with a let. Verse 19. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. Notice that wrongfully. We've seen that without a cause. You know, uh, when I'm evil for good, wrongfully. He said, I don't deserve it. Let them not rejoice over me. Okay. That's negative. <clears throat> who are wrongfully my enemies nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. So there you see, walk wrongfully and without a cause are equals there. Line 1 and line 2 of that verse basically say the same thing. In line 1 it says, don't let them rejoice. In line 2 of verse 19 it says, don't let them wink. Now, a wink is a sign of congratulations. It's a secret sign of congratulations. Showing pleasure in something. So let's say I'm pulling off a deal and I've got a friend who's in the room with me and says, I'm ready to pull off this deal. And I go, just look at him and go, you know what that means, doesn't it? You know what that means? It means, hey, we're pulling this thing off. He says, don't let them, don't let them wink. Don't let them rejoice that they're going to get me out of here. Look what he says in verse 20. He gives us the reason right here. Reason for his request. For, because they don't speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters. See, uh, deceitful means that, you know, they're scheming against the quiet ones of the land, namely David. David's the quiet one of the land. He hasn't raised his voice against them. He's kept his mouth shut. See. Verse 21. They also opened their mouths wide against me, and, and they said, Ha, 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 ha. Our eyes have seen it. We saw him do that. 
See, that's the deception. That's the deceiving they're doing. They're claiming that he's done things that he hasn't done that he doesn't know anything about. So we see that uh, he keeps his mouth shut while they open their mouth and they try to accuse him of things that he hasn't done. So he calls upon God. So look at verse 22. This you've seen, O Lord. You know, you know they're doing it. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. So David basically prays to God to get him out of the situation. Now again, in verses 22 through 24, you see courtroom language. And you're going to see how this all works out. In verse 20, for example, he says, um, They don't speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones of the land. David and his supporters are quiet ones. They're not fighting back against these people. They're quiet ones. But in verse 22, he says to God, Lord, you've seen it. Don't keep quiet. He wants somebody to speak up for him. But he's not going to do it. He wants God to speak up for him. He asks God not to remain quiet. In verse 23, you see courtroom language in the word vindication. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication. And then in verse 24, vindicate me, O Lord. The word vindicate means acquit. Find me not guilty. Get me off the charge is basically what he is saying. Verse 24, vindicate me, O Lord, according to your righteousness. Literally, according to your justice. He's asking for justice. So, and then he says, don't let them rejoice over me. Don't let them win the trial and go out and go to the bar room and have a great big celebration because they've, they've won the trial and I've lost, metaphorically speaking. They, they, they've destroyed me, basically, is what he's saying. Don't allow any of that to happen. You see those words, my God and my Lord and my Lord and my God. Reminds you of Thomas when he sees the resurrected Jesus. That's how he calls what he how he addresses Jesus, my Lord and my God. That's how David addresses the God of the Jews, Yahweh. Okay? So that's all the way down to verse 24. Now look at verse 25. You have another let. <clears throat> Do that. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion. We've seen that back in section one, didn't we? Who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. So we have the words confusion, shame, and dishonor, which means publicly uh, embarrass them. You, know, you lose the case and uh, you're embarrassed. Uh, this recent case that we had with this girl who supposedly was accused of killing her little child. Remember that? And the, the jury found her innocent. And at the end, they said, well, why was that? Because the prosecution just couldn't bring a case. It was an embarrassment to the district attorney. Didn't do his job. What an embarrassment. A lot of accusations. Didn't give the evidence. Now, we don't know whether she did it or not. We'll never know whether she did it. But they didn't have the evidence. And guess what? Her team rejoiced. The district attorney said, well, we believe that she did it. Why didn't you bring the evidence? Well, we what an embarrassment. That's what he says. Embarrass them uh, that they haven't been able to 
dislodge me from my position. And then the third let, verse 26. Let them be ashamed. Did I already read that one? Verse that one. Next let, verse 27. Let them shout for joy. I skipped 25, didn't I? Yeah, why didn't you say that? <laughs> verse 25. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah! So, we would have it. Let them say, we have, don't let them say, uh, we have swallowed him up. Don't allow that to happen. So he says, don't allow them to rejoice that they've won, won the trial, they've gotten me out of office, but instead humiliate them. Then the last letter in verse 27 says, let them shout for joy who favor my righteous call. Now, here's a, another let, but it involves a different group of people. My supporters. Let my supporters who have kept quiet this whole time, who have never said anything publicly, We've all depended on you. Watch this. Verse 27. Let them shout for joy and be glad to favor my righteous cause or my just cause. And let them say continually. This is the praise section. Let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. That servant, of course, is King David. So we're in the praise section and he says, Lord, allow my supporters to praise you when everything is settled and done. And then verse 28. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness or your justice and of your praise all the day long. So we have the three sections of the psalm, which is a sequel to Psalm 34. And we learned some lessons here, don't we? I think we do. Uh, <clears throat> it tells us in a sense, because we know the context, we can draw out personal lessons for our own. When you, we just read the psalm, you don't know the context and the, the historical background. It doesn't quite have the grip that it has once you understand it. And once you understand the historical context, then you can extrapolate lessons for yourself. And so here we learn a lesson of what to do when friends, or people who appear to be your friends, <laughs> uh, double-cross you. And side with your enemies. You ever have somebody do that? Thought they were your friend? They really weren't. They were hypocrites. Said one thing to you, but they'd meet for lunch with somebody else and talk about you. What are you to do in that situation? What should your response be? Well, David's response was he did good to them. Remember, that's what Jesus said. He said, when people do evil to you, just do good to them. It's like heaping coals on their head. Uh, we should respond by doing good to those who are evil toward us. And we should ask God to be our defender and expose them in time for what they are. Not our friends at all. Hypocrites. And humiliate them. And in the end, we will be vindicated. So that's the goal, is that we'll be vindicated. But there's also another lesson here, and this lesson, I think, has to do with... Uh, what do we do in a situation when people we know accuse others? Something. Who should you stand with? Should you stand with the accusers? <laughs> and should you get and say, yeah, I know he's like that. So that you get on their good side, or should you stand with the innocent? We should always stand with the innocent because God is for the innocent. God is for the poor. God's for the oppressed. God's for those who are being hurt by 
people uh, that are have evil in their heart, and we should always stand for the innocent. And when we do, in the end, we'll be the ones that are praising the Lord, and uh, we will be rejoicing that God has vindicated those people from death. This psalm, for me, tells us what evil really is. You know, it's hard to define evil. You know, we talk about sin and things like that. But what is evil? I mean, when something is really evil. And evil is when someone does something really bad to you for no reason. Not a cause. What cause in the world. In fact, all you've done is good toward them. You've been gracious toward them. You've loaned them money. You've done this. You've done that. And guess what? Turn around and just... For no reason at all. That's evil. Evil is when someone does something for no good reason. And they just do it because they want to do it. Some selfish reason. And that's how we describe evil. And David was a person who knew what evil was and he knew how to handle it. He said, when that situation, when evil comes against you, you depend upon God and ask Him to vindicate you. Next week, we will hit Psalm 36. Right. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this psalm gives us some life lessons that we need to learn. We always need to stand for justice. We need to stand for righteousness. We need to stand for the oppressed. We need to not react, but trust you when people come against us with unjust accusations. Oh Lord, help us to be people of faith. People who know how to depend upon you for who could have any greater defender than you? So, Lord, help us to learn this lesson and put it into practice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.